Hello and welcome to show seven of All Back to Bowie's. My brain hurts a lot. Money and wages in an independent Scotland. Uh, this is a, a really interesting show. We had a terrific panel. We had um, Ian Fraser, uh, uh, Ricky Ross, Ben Dyson, Nicola McCartney uh, on the panel uh, and hosted by Laura Eaton-Lewis, who... Um, who is a real a economics junkie, and I think that comes across brilliantly in the interview. Um, yeah, it's just fantastic, this show. Ricky Ross is just about the best uh, the songwriter of working-class Scotland that we've ever produced, and he turns in two beautiful performances here. Uh, the discussion is brain-meltingly interesting, and... Um, uh, I think also the letter from um, is good as well. We've got a letter from uh, East Timor uh, read by Julia Tordovin. So there's lots of highlights. Please uh, sit back and enjoy show seven. My brain hurts a lot. I have to sit here. I feel like... Um, ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to uh, David Bowie's rooftop, Manhattan rooftop yurt for All Back to Bowie's. My name's David Gregg. Um, I'm part of the All Back to Bowie's team. We, um, we were just really delighted when Kate Moss gave the message from David saying, Scotland, stay with us. So we thought, yeah, let's do that. And we went over, and he's very, very kindly put us up in his um, in the guest yurt, um, uh, uh, and he's been he's been very kind so far. He hasn't come to any of the shows yet, but but he leaves um, he leaves notes, you know, occasionally about the iron brew cans under the futon and so on. Um, at All Back to Bowie's, we discuss Scottish culture and politics, um, hopefully in an interesting and light way. Today's discussion is about money, currency, and the economy. Um, the, uh, uh, and it's called My Brain Hurts a Lot. Uh, you, some of you may recognize that as a David Bowie uh, quote. Every show has to have a Bowie quote to start with. Um, we've got a fantastic program for you today and some great, great guests. A, uh, but before we do that, I think it's very important to establish some house rules. One of the house rules uh, in Bowie's yurt is that we don't ask people, we don't ask our guests or our audience whether they're going to vote yes or no. Uh, and the reason for that is that we feel there's only one important binary question in Scotland right now. One question that people are talking about in pubs and on buses and in taxis, and that is this. Is it Bowie or Bowie? <laughs> and so to get that out of the way, we'd like to conduct our informal referendum right now and just find out which side of the fence you sit. So, please, if you agree that, yes, it is Bowie, put your hand up. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, oh no, keep it up, keep it up, I have to count, I have to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 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 eight
36. Sarah, uh, Sarah is keeping. Do we have a running total? Okay, but 36. <laughs> so please, if it's if it's Bowie, could you? Oh, this again. You see, I'm one, two, three, four, five, six. So we, that's 30. It's an unusual. Normally, there's a very, very big win for, for Bowie. Um, but I think that just goes to show that the way you ask the question affects the result. Um, I, I'm a Bowie. A Bowie. Oh, no. We did, we did, we did have a, we did have a, a, a Devo Max option, um, which was which was that he should be David, we should call him Davy Jones, but, um, but anyway. Okay, so we must move on. Um, we have a fantastic first guest for you. Um, uh, he's somebody who I'm sure you saw very recently performing at the Commonwealth Games. You'll know him from Deacon Blue, you'll know him from the radio, you'll know him because he's quite simply one of the finest songwriters Scotland's ever produced. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Ricky Ross. Boy. <laughs> um, I thought I'd do this song. I thought this would be a good song to do. <clears throat> you sigh, you walk, you talk, you care about nothing. Sometimes you feel that life has treated you wrong. I've got a feeling you know what the score is, baby. But it's hard when you're sitting there surrounded by friends. Cling on to And I'll stay there Stay there to the Lives out in this 
on that one great thanks very much that was fantastic ricky thank you very much um i forgot to mention at the beginning that every day at bowie's we set a task uh for the audience um something to think about during the course of the show um and it's to finish a sentence so a sentence appropriate to the theme of the show um yesterday for example the show was about braveheart and our sentence that we asked the audience to complete was Braveheart is dot, dot, dot. Okay? And then throughout the course of the show, we ask that you have a think about it and you just find about your person some scrap of paper, 
a fringe flyer. I'm sure you've all got plenty fringe flyers that you've been given or a receipt or a bus ticket or anything that you've got or a nice, pristine sheet of A4 if you happen to have that and just finish the sentence that we offer um, and if you don't have a pen someone in your row will have a pen Scotland is a social democratic country we share our resources um, so just write, this, write today's sentence um, and a, at the end we'll collect them all in and if we've got a bit of time we'll read some of them at least out but even the ones that we don't read out, we collect them all and we write them all down. And we also collect all of the, um, all of the bus tickets and the scraps and everything. And they're, they're part of the whole Bowie guest book package that is going to be uh, kept at the National Library of Scotland as part of their referendum, um, as part of their referendum archive. So it's a wonderful, genuinely wonderful thing. And it's lovely to have it on all the little scraps of paper. So... The sentences today, we're going to give you two sentences today, are I get paid to dot 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 and I don't get paid to dot dot dot. So you could do either or both of those sentences on, but on different scraps of paper if you can. So I get paid to dot 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 and I don't get paid to dot dot dot. Okay? Um, as I say, it's your chance to be creative if you want. You can be factual, you can be political, polemical, fantastical, whatever you think. Um, but the only thing I would ask is to keep it relatively brief, although usually a bus ticket size will um, act as a fine editor. Okay, we now are going to introduce our uh, today's polemicist and... Um, his name is Ben Dyson from the organisation Positive Money. Um, I think we need to move the piano out of the way. So, uh, Ben, if, if, uh, if, if you'd all just give us a moment while Sarah and I move the piano and Ben comes up to the stage. And are you all right with this mic, Ben? Is this OK, great. So if you come up to the stage. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ben Dyson. Thank you. So the, um, the big question in the independence debate seems to be, what do you do about the currency? And um, the discussion so far seems to be that the, the consensus is, well, it's either going to be the pound or the euro. And my question would be, if Scotland does go independent and does have this, this option to choose which currency it uses, why would it choose either of those two currencies when they have both failed dramatically caused a financial crisis, a banking crisis, um, a recession, mass unemployment, why would you want to replicate a, a model of a currency that doesn't work? So if you're not going to go for either the pound or the euro, what is your option? Um, and what is the problem with uh, the way that these currencies work? Well, firstly, the, the big problem with both the pound and the euro and most currencies around the world is that governments have inadvertently given the control 
over-creating them to the same banks that caused the financial crisis. So this isn't a, a very well-known fact, but um, most uh, money is not cash. It's not that you know, paper money in your pocket which says the Bank of England on the side of it. It's just numbers in a computer system, and it's the numbers that you see when you check your account balance. Now, those, that electronic money makes up 97% of all the money that exists, and it's created by banks um, through some very simple accounting whenever somebody takes out a loan. So when you walk into a bank to take out a mortgage, that money isn't coming from somebody else's life savings. Um, the bank just opens up the computer, types a few numbers in, and, you know, hey, presto, new money is created. And um, what this means is that the more reckless banks are feeling, the more confident they are, the more they lend, um, the lower their sort of criteria on who, they, who they'll lend to. And every new loan creates new money. So in the years running up to the financial crisis, you had them lending huge sums of newly created money. Um, that caused the, uh, the bubble. It caused the boom. Um, at the time, everybody thought this is brilliant because you know, house prices are going up and employment's going up. But the problem is um, all of that money is borrowed. So there's more and more debt um, and more interest to pay on this debt. Um, and eventually that leads to the point where the debt is too much, um, people default, and you have a, the kind of financial crisis that we've had. So if you use the model of the pound and the euro and you replicate that to create a new currency for Scotland, you would basically give control over how much money there is in the economy to RBS and HBOS. So, you know, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> so what you should be doing... Um, if it gets to this point where Scotland has the opportunity to choose its own currency, um, the main things you need to do, don't give the same banks that caused the financial crisis the power to create 97% of the money that the Scottish economy runs on. Bring that power back to some kind of democratic, transparent, accountable body where everybody can see you know, how much money has been created and how that money has been used. And now obviously you don't give Alex Salmond the, the power to decide how much money he's going to create, um, because he's going to have the same uh, incentives to abuse that power as any of the banks do. So you need to make sure that there is um, complete transparency over how much money has been created. And then what do you do with that money when you create new money? Because um, at the moment, the banks put most of it into property bubbles and financial markets, um, which has led us to the situation that we have today. What you should do instead is make sure that that money gets into the real economy. So whether it comes in through government spending, whether you just divide it up between everybody equally and give everybody a, a check in the post, um, get it into people's pockets so that they can spend it in the real economy. And that will create jobs and it will help your economy grow. Um, but whatever you do, don't replicate the pound and the euro because both of those currencies don't work and they have failed. And you don't want to take a model... Um, that underpins your economy from a system that has already failed. So. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Ben. That was brilliant, really fascinating. Um, we now have our panel to talk both about that provocation and also more broadly... Um, so can I please welcome to stage, first of all, Laura Eaton-Lewis, who's going to be our very own Bernard Ponsonby for, um, for today's discussion. Uh, I'll get her a chair just now. And Laura, if you would introduce our panel to us, and I'll get your chair. 
Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome Ian Fraser, um, who is the author of Shredded, which is the expose from inside RBS, um, detailing exactly how they contributed to and were affected by the financial crash. Please come to the stage, Ian Fraser. Um, ben Dyson, who we've already heard from Positive Money. Thanks, Ben. And we have Nicola McCartney, who is a playwright. Please come to the stage, Nicola. And Ricky Ross. Dear Ricky. Thank you. Okay, now I think we need to use... Thanks, David. This microphone over here. Um, <clears throat> very, very... Um, very glad to be here in the home of banking, St. Andrew's Square, um, and, and quite, uh, quite, uh, quite the place to be for this discussion. Um, as many or many of you may not be aware, this was also the site of the Occupy protests in Edinburgh, um, and the Occupy movement during that time did some great work to try and think through alternatives to the economic system that we were dealing with there. So, First off, I'd just like to ask each of the panellists if you'd like to respond to that provocation. Start with a singer. <laughs> Surrounded by economists. Um, I, 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 like you, as it was all uh, you know, interesting stuff to me. Um, my, you know, I probably, what I want to do is, is, is throw in further provocations, really. Which is, is, that, is that okay to, to do that? Um, which is that, um, you know, I do think that I, I missed the debate the other night, and I was just kind of slightly following it on Twitter as I was making a journey. Um, um, but, you know, interestingly enough, I saw uh, two things to say really about it. One is that I think we always ask questions of these people about economic questions. We tend to ask them from the top down. We tend to ask economists, and we tend to ask financial people and, and kind of gaze in their eyes uh, and fall at their feet and go, what, do, what can you tell us? Uh, I think it'd be interesting, much more interesting, to ask people who really know about money, people who are at the margins, who have to make budget decisions at a very cutting edge every week about what they spend, about where their children go to school, how they go to school, and what healthcare and so on uh, options they have. So I think that, you know, first of all, I think sometimes we ask our own questions. And secondly, just on, on the current thing, I think that if people think that the currency issue is one of these, you know, slam dunk uh, referendum issues. Uh, today, people from one of the parties were rolling up to Butte House and bringing a big gold coin as if to say, oh, we found you out kind of thing. Well, I think, first of all, to go up to Butte House is misunderstanding the Yes campaign. And secondly, I think that, that currency is, you know, I, I think it's just, it, it's an issue, but it's not the thing that's going to make people either want to or not want to be take control of their lives. Um, I'm going to start with a, a little bit of an anecdote um, about a real person on the sharp end, I think, of, of the, the current kind of repercussions of the financial crisis. As well as being a playwright, I'm a foster carer for Glasgow City Council and I do a lot of work in prisons and with young people leaving care and people with addictions, doing social theatre projects. Yesterday I had to say goodbye to an eight-year-old I've been fostering for about 18 months. I'm part-time work with her as a therapeutic carer because I'm trained to work with attachment disorder. Um, 
her story is not unique in what I've seen in the last kind of eight years of being a foster parent. And before that, I sat on the children's panel in Scotland for some time before that. So I've seen this kind of happen over and over again. But the situation for this child was that um, she's been in care since she was a toddler. She has major behavioural and psychiatric issues due to the poor care she had initially. Um, because social services is so poorly under-resourced in this country, she was never given any psychiatric and, and psychological help, which may have helped her to overcome some of the initial issues that she had and stay in the placement. It, her foster carers were given no support whatsoever until she started coming to me in order to help manage her behavioural problems. And in the 18 months that she's had some support, it's made a difference. But unfortunately, a crisis point came last year when her carers decided they could no longer look after her. Due to all of the, the cuts that are being handed down to local authorities, um, Glasgow City Council uh, were unable to find her other foster carers for lots of different reasons, which would be too lengthy to go into. Full-time carers um, who were able and trained to kind of deal with her particular set of difficulties. So as a result of that, um, and she, she was never ever given, because there are no resources available, never given any, any help or support. Um, as a result of all of that, she's now had to be moved into the private sector in a placement which is impermanent and insecure, because the alternative to that was that a child of under 10 would be placed in a children's unit. And all the children's units are closing anyway, because that was a policy of several years ago. In, in Scotland and particularly in Glasgow closed down all the children's units. So what I want to know and why I think currency is so important is how do we create a society where wealth trickles down to those people? Those people who can't be part, the most vulnerable, those people who can't be part of our me first economy. And the currency choice is really, really important to us in terms of the type of society we want to create in Scotland because if we actually do go for sterling, I'm kind of with Ben on this. Uh, well, Ben was giving us a choice. But if we do go for sterling, we're shackled to all the social and all the economic policies of a probably conservative government in England and Wales and Northern Ireland for the next decade. Do we really want that? It's not the type of country I want to live in. So I'd rather not have sterling. Thank you, Nicola. That's really 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 sad and very moving story to hear and really highlights many of the problems that are, are being experienced by people on the ground level as part of this economic system that we all play a role within um this this question of tri wealth trickling down is of course very pertinent and and that makes me think made me think of a, a piece that i read in forbes, forbes magazine an american entrepreneur who um, had basically revealed that absolutely very, very little, next to nothing of the wealth trickles down if, if all investment goes into to the top level of, of organisations and tax breaks and so on. And um, what Ben's suggesting there um, with the positive money campaign about, about money being taken away from the banks to do that is, is certainly one way of, of injecting um, the, the economic resources at a ground level to, to transform the economy. And 
I quite like that on purpose we decided to subvert the usual rules for economic discussion and and began with people at the coal face here. Um, but but now we would like to pass over to Ian Fraser, who is of course a specialist in in the banking, to give us give us first your your response to the provocation there, Ian. Well, I'm I'm, I'm very interested in the work that uh, Ben Dyson and uh, is that too near and positive money have been doing over the years. And it's just very radical, you know, very radical proposals, which would require a huge um, change of mindset at a, at a political and establishment level to, to achieve. But, you know, he, he, the, the organization that he leads is pushing, pushing away at this, and I admire him for, for doing that. But I, I would disagree that the Sterts, both Sterling and the Euro, have failed, which I think is what he said. You know, they have, have had a lot of turbulence, particularly the euro, and the sterling, well, sterling obviously could have suffered a serious crisis in 08, but because of interventions that, that the UK government did, it didn't. Um, you know, that was avoided. So it's, you know, it's not as if sterling is necessarily a failed currency. I, don't, I, didn't, I, I didn't quite agree with that part of it. Um, as far as uh, the merits or otherwise of independent Scotland having a currency union or a currency board or the euro or its own currency, I mean, I'm not really an expert on, on this, but if it re- I agree with Nicola, if it, if it really wants to establish its own identity and pursue its own totally independent policies as far as economics and uh, welfare are concerned, then it definitely needs to, it would be easier to achieve with its own currency, but that would also have a lot of risk. Because, you know, a newly established currency which has no um, credibility in the, in the in, Mm. international markets and stuff would be subject to possible crises much more so than sterling has been you know it could be subject to a greek stock crisis or that sort of thing would that um, be such an issue for a scottish economy that isn't based on banking products and and those kind of transactions that take place in the city of westminster um or or is is well, are, are there as many risks as being part of the the sterling zone um, sorry, could you just say the question again? Um, um. <laughs> would would the would the the problem of maybe having a new currency that isn't that maybe d- doesn't have so much confidence within in- within the international markets be such a problem for a Scottish economy, given that it isn't quite so dependent on banking products? I think it would actually, because I think. I mean, it has debt. Scotland would have. Scotland would presumably need to take on at least some of the. UK national debt. If it if it if it goes independent and if it um, f- uh, doesn't have a currency union, I think there are, there's a view that it could just wash its hands of its obli- its debt obligations to the rest of the UK in such an instance. So it would actually have quite a substantial amount of uh, debt. I don't know the exact figures, and that would need to be serviced. You know, so so it would. I, I think irrespective. Of the of the fundamental basis of its economy, which which will include financial services, which will include oil, which will include um, food and drink, biotechnology, etc., it, it it would be vulnerable to uh, to attack by speculators. Isn't it the case though that from a legal perspective, um, the the state of Scotland, as it were, or as it would be to become, doesn't actually have any obligation to any debt because Scotland as a sovereignty, didn't actually take out any debt 
in the first place. I'm not saying there is no moral obligation, but from a legal perspective, unless Scotland were to be a continuing state, um, there would actually be no obligation to, to that debt. Is that not the case? I, it, may, it may be the case. Does anyone else in the audience know the answer to that? Um, Peter? But did they not both become continuing states? Exactly so. That's right. So um, what Peter was saying well, there was when the precedent that, that he's referring to is when the Czech and Slovak um, uh, countries separated, they took a, an, uh, they negotiated a distribution of that, that debt. Yeah, um, so I think that's what would have to occur yes. in, in, a, in a breakup. Well, if, the, if Scotland were to become independent, I believe the same thing would probably have to happen here. Mm. Otherwise, you'd start your life, Scotland will start its life as an independent nation with really pretty, you know, fractious relations with its bigger partner in the side. That's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's certainly but not something that we'd want to do. Nobody wants to annoy the neighbours, do there, we? We don't want people <laughs> posting dog poo through the front door. <laughs> we don't want these things to happen. Um, but but certainly that's that's a negotiating position, yes. isn't it? That that is that is a power that Scotland can hold in terms of negotiating what currency outcome we want to have. And yeah, just like Faz Lane is as well. You know, yes. there's a number of things that Absolutely. you put on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the alternative currency options, um, we've we've heard from Ben here that that he feels that um, to have a new currency is is a better option. Does anyone else have any opinions on which of the options were on the table? And why do we think Alex Salmond didn't actually talk about those options? Wasn't that strange? Wasn't that strange that he just referred to a paper? The, the paper that, that those of us that have done our research will have seen, and there are five different options for, for currency. There's a plan A, B, C, D, and E. Um, why didn't he say that? Can I answer that one? Yes, please. I, I think basically Salmond um, fears that if he was to name his preferred plan B, he'd be walking into a bear trap, a political bear trap. And also, um, just to name a, a plan B kind of undermines his stance when he's starting to negotiate post-September the 18th in the event of a yes vote. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have anything they want to add on that? I mean, I think there's a number of... I think you're right, absolutely, 100% right. That's why, politically, you don't do it. My little boy is always saying to me, are we going to have the monarchy? And I said, well, can you imagine uh, having that one as part of the discussion? And I think what, what was interesting to me about the yes campaign and or the no campaign, whichever way you want to look at it, but this campaign, is that they are pretty broad coalitions. I mean... There's people that I know in the Yes campaign who think we're going to see the new Socialist Republic. Um, and, you know, I think they might become a little bit disappointed, you know, because I, I just don't think that necessarily everyone in the Yes campaign is of that same feeling. Now, it's, it's a very, very broad church. And, you know, I, th I think that's right. I think that, that there are so many issues that are, are not... But we've managed to coalesce around this one thing. Do we want to have our own uh, government and do we want to have a separate country? So... I think it's one of these many questions that will that will that will go on for quite a while. And the idea that we're going to solve it in the next few weeks is, is ludicrous. I think. Mm. Um, we've got a few people in the audience that want to want to ask some questions. I wonder if you would mind if I if I just 
go through a couple of more from the stage and then we'll, we'll open that up for, for some thoughts or, or questions from the floor. Um, firstly, before we talk about what sort of economy we would like to see in Scotland, I think maybe it's worth giving a little bit of time to the economy that, that currently exists. I wonder if each of the panellists could tell us from your experience um, what that economy, what that economic situation is. Maybe if we could begin with Nicola. You're asking a playwright to talk about money, okay. Um, uh, well, I, I guess I'm not gonna say anything particularly original here. Of course, we got this two-track economy and the predominant kind of part of the economy is, is the financial sector, this making money out of money idea. And, and that seems to me to be clearly, fundamentally the problem that we have, that the other type of economy and the type of economy it seems to me that we, we need to have in Scotland is much more the, the production model, where you're actually creating taxpayers, you're creating jobs to create taxpayers that can then, uh, that money can be reinvested back into our society and can help the poorest. And if we're so heavily reliant upon, ridiculously imbalanced towards this whole financial kind of sector, that that simply isn't happening. And that's why we're heading towards uh, a black hole with pensions and everything else. The pensions question came up in the debate the other evening. If we're going to be able to pay pensions in Scotland, we need to have more taxpayers, which means we need to have more jobs. Seems to me really clear cut what sort of economic model we need to have in Scotland. That's great. Thank you, Nicola. Um, and what we're really talking about here, when we talk about um, the economies, we're talking about the, the, the measures that we use to, to value the exchange of, of effort, of the value that, of production or, or, or these things. And, and um, with, out with the, the formal economy, there is, of course, an informal economy, whether that's of childcare, um, caring for, for sick and elderly people, voluntary work. There are all sorts of values and really powerful things that we each contribute to, this society is part of, which are not necessarily measured as part of, part of this, this uh, formal economy here. And if we are to believe the cultural theorist Jérôme Lanier, um, we're all going to experience a move towards much more of this as there are f more and more part-time zero-hours contracts and much more and more of our, our, our um, intellectual value is being crowdsourced and, and skimmed off by other com uh, companies. This is not just a problem of women and of the disabled and elderly and people in society who are traditionally marginalised. This is about to become an issue for every single one of us. Um, Ricky, <laughs> could I could I ask you maybe to to talk to to that on the subject of dignity? I was, we were th David and I were talking about dignity this morning. A song very much about saving up and about prudence and imprudence. Um, do you have anything that you would like to to share with us on that? Well, yeah, I mean that that story of that that the guy in that song and and, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's just a model that doesn't exist. People don't want to... It's not in anyone's interest to do that anymore, in a sense. Um, but it's also, you know, interesting. It's a song about someone saving his money. It's also a song about work, you know. And when I wrote that song in 1985, the big question on everyone's lips was, what are we going to do about unemployment? What's going to happen about unemployment? It's all the time. And it occurred to me, and it occurred to lots of other people, I'm sure, at the same time, is if we're going to have full employment, there's a whole lot of people who are going to have to do jobs which are not very attractive. And, and people, so that, that that was really what in what inspired that um, that whole process of of thinking. And it, it strikes me that what Nicholas said is absolutely 
true. But, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the reasons that I sort of came to tilt towards wanting independence, I suppose, was what happened in places like Garkosh and so on, when we actually stopped. We give up the possibility of making things. We give up the possibility that we're going to manufacture things. We said, oh, we can do that elsewhere. I think you have to... I think we have to become uh, economy and people who make things. I think we have to... That's something that we have to believe we can do again. And um, From a music point of view, from the music industry, the kind of models that I love uh, is when I went up to a place like Iceland, where they, they have a very interesting music business in Iceland, where everyone that I met in the music business not only say performed, wrote songs, but if they did that, they also maybe did a television show or a radio show, or they did other little things within that, or managed someone and so on. Um, and that's because that was the economy of scale that they were working to, so they were being very re realistic about it. But, you know, I could, I could have a discussion here about the possibilities of independence based solely on the industry that I work in and why it works for that and why, rather why it isn't working for that, as I'm sure you could for, for theatre as well. Um, but I think we've got to look at manufacturing, make that possible, and also look at developing a, an economy that works for us. Thank you. So we've very much got an economy that, that doesn't value production and, and an economy which, indeed, which instead um, grow, has grown off the back of um, property bubbles. Um, I wonder if, if we could uh, hear from Ian Fraser and Ben Dyson about that. Ian, in particular, I'd like to ask you to what extent um, about RBS, about the corruption there, of course you're a specialist on that, to what extent RBS is a Scottish bank? Are we a Scottish bank and is that a Scottish problem? Well, I'd just like to, to open by saying one of the reasons I have been veering towards yes is because I'm so disenchanted and disgusted by the corruption that I see um, in the Westminster stroke city establishment, whereby crimes don't get prosecuted, whereby, you know, someone who seem, who, who um, where there is substantial evidence of criminality, that the whole matter gets swept under the carpet with some kind of inquiry or with the FCA doing another whitewash. And to me, that is wrong. You know, the, one of the reasons we, we, we had the banking crisis was because of lax regulation, um, weak regulation, or, or, or regulation that wasn't properly applied. And it, it hasn't changed since the banking crisis of 08. So this is one of the reasons why I'm you know, so disenchanted with the city through Westminster establishment and why I see independence as an opportunity potentially to break away from that and create a, a more... Um, ethical, ethical economy. But as far as um, RBS is concerned, um, it's not really a Scottish bank at all anymore. I mean, its centre of gravity actually shifted to London in March 2000 when they acquired NetWest, which was a, two, a bank that was three times larger than, than they were. And its entire markets business, which is the business that did most of the damage um, in terms of destroying that bank in October 08 and build up to October 08 is based in London and in Connecticut and various other places around the world. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how you could really divide it up, but, but in terms of, of its workforce, it only has, I think, um, 9,000 staff in Scotland in total out of about 140,000 staff. Wow. So it's, not, <laughs> so it's not really a Scottish bank. You know, the, the board meetings, I don't believe, even take place at Gogoburn any longer. They're held, I, I think, down in London in Bishopsgate, which is, which they themselves even now call the head office. So. <laughs> Hear that? Straight from the horse's mouth. Head offices in London, only 
um, I can't work out the percentage of that, but that sounds to me like less than 5% of staff um, in, are based in Scotland. Um, and the, the majority, or was that, would you say all of the, the arms of the bank that, that lost money and contributed to the crisis? Not all, no. I mean, all. there was some pretty bad lending that went on in Scotland too, but it was a tiny percentage of the total. Tiny percentage of yeah. the total. And we have heard from, I'm sorry, I know yeah. we're running out of time here, but it's really, really fascinating discussion. We have heard from um, the RBS chairman um, that they George may... George Matheson. Yes. Were they considering basing the head of the official registered head office of, of RBS outside sorry. of Scotland? Yeah, there's two things here. There's The former chairman, George Matheson, has yes. said there's a lot of scaremongering about future financial services if Scotland becomes independent. Um, and I thought that was quite an interesting piece. He, it was not a, an opinion piece in the Financial Times because uh, he's, a, he's a strong supporter of independence and he left the bank in 2006. Um, the current chairman, um, Philip Hampton, I think he hasn't said it would move to London, but I think he's basically pointed out in the, the notes to the annual report and accounts for 2013 uh, that, you know, there'd be some serious issues if Scotland became independent in terms of credit ratings and various other things, which would, which would be, which might, I mean, he hasn't explicitly stated it, but it would, might make it inclined to shift its tec technical registered head office south of the border. Um, but that's, that, that's part of any company's normal annual return. You would do a risk assessment against all the political and, and yeah. other situations well, they have, they that have might to, arise. They have to do that. It's, yes. it's a statutory requirement, yeah. as far as I'm aware. So there's nothing extraordinary in that. That's just No, no almost every large corporate that's based in Scotland has done something along those lines okay. in, the, in the past, uh, in the past uh, 12 months or so. Some people would say that's just scaremongering, but you know they do have to. There is uncertainty if Scotland becomes independent. There is uncertainty, and they have to. Of course, and there is uncertainty if yeah. Scotland is to stay part of the UK. Yes. In terms of the well, possible. I was going to mention something about the changes to taxation of North Sea oil. Um, you know, everyone says it, it's uncertain and unstable if Scotland becomes independent. You know, we won't know what's going on. So, well, how are we going to survive? Kind of thing. But actually, in terms of North Sea Oil, there have been 16 tax changes for that over the past 10 years, which has been highly disruptive to the industry. And you know, perhaps Scotland could actually have, have fewer tax changes if it was independent. Yeah. Oh, this might not work. There we go. Um, yeah, I think you have to question this. So the whole idea of the dependence on the financial services sector. And I think most people in the UK have this conception that you have a few big banks in London that generate all the wealth. And then there's just a scattering of like crappy little factories spread around the rest of the country. And that's our economy. Um, the reality is that um, the financial services sector doesn't employ as many people as we think it does. More people are employed in hotels and restaurants than are employed in finance. Um, the corporation tax it pays is less than the manufacturing sector pays. The only reason it um, can claim to be contributing so much to the treasury is because um, of PAYE that it, you know, that its employees pay, and that's because you know they're massively overpaid. And actually, the banks are getting their revenue from the interest that we're paying on mortgages and all this debt anyway. So that's coming out of our pocket in the first place. Um, so I think you you have to really question that. There's a difference between wealth creation and wealth extraction. And a lot of what banking does is wealth extraction, not wealth creation. But both of those things show up as profit, and a lot of people and a lot of politicians don't know, know, don't know the difference. So 
Okay, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting this. They're going to cut my head off if we keep going. They're totally going to cut my head off. Um, but just one word from each of the panellists. If there is one thing that we can do to change the can economy for the better, what would it be? Uh, save the power to create money away from the banks. Thank you. One thing? Um, regulate finance properly. Great. Listen to the poorest people. Stop thinking that inequality is good and that that's actually what, that's what's creating the surge to the top and that's the fundamental belief of all of our economic life at the moment. And I think we should have a citizen's income. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much to our fantastic panel. There's so much stuff spinning around my head now. My brain really does hurt a lot, but in a much uh, better way than it did before. So thanks very much to the panel. Uh, and if we could get ready to welcome our next guest to the stage. Um, have you, yeah. Thanks very much. Give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you to uh, Ian Fraser, to Ricky Ross, to Nicola McCartney and Ben Dyson. Uh, bear in mind also that we'll all be in the bar area afterwards, so the conversation can continue once the show's over. Um, and are you thinking of your... Have you done your sentences? Make sure you've got your sentences on your little scraps of paper. I get paid two. I don't get paid two. It would be fantastic if you could fill them out. So, I'd love to welcome to the stage... We always have a poet every day uh, at Bowie's Yurt, and today's poet is... Agnes Turok. Please welcome to the stage, Agnes Turok. I'm going to warn you, I wave my arms about a lot, so it's a lot easier if I don't wave the mic around as well. I'm going to try this. So I thought I'd share my note with you, because I got very excited. I did find a Lothian bus tickets, and I had to write something on it. And I wrote, I am paid to stop complaining. I do not get paid to live. Um, so I, I work for minimum wage, which is, which is um, a, a new and very exciting experience for me uh, because I am 22 years old and never in my life have I been paid for work before. Not because I haven't applied, not because I haven't worked full time. Um, and, and, I, and I thought I'd give a little bit of a, of a background story to this very strange accent and last name I have, which is I'm from Sweden. Uh, I grew up in Sweden, which obviously has a very different attitude to politics and the politics of, of the economy. Um, and, I, and I sort of saw a lot of that hope turn. So the year that the financial crisis hit the hardest in Sweden, 2008, was the year that I graduated high school. And my, uh, the, sort of, the sort of head teacher uh, gave a long speech about all the opportunities that were ahead of us, right? We would all go off into the world and all, and all these great things we would do, when of course um, unemployment for young people had never been higher in the history of the Swedish um, economy. Um, and, and then the Swedish economy go far back. We used to be an empire in the late 1700s. There's never been as high youth unemployment as there been now. Um, so, so I lived in Sweden. I had the strong sense that things were changing and things were changing for the worse. Um, and then I decided, well, I'm going to move somewhere else. And I moved to South Africa. 
and and I lived in South Africa at a time when when the the development plan, which is which is a fancy word for saying ideas of how economies should be and how countries should be, um, changed from being focused on providing public services to some of the absolute poorest people in the world to providing financial services for some of the absolute richest people in that country. So South Africa is the world's most unequal country in terms of wealth. Um, and I lived there at a time when things were, felt like they were changing and they felt like they were changing for the worse. So I thought, I'll move something somewhere exotic. I'll move somewhere sunny. I'll move to Scotland. Um, and I came here. And, and I came here at a time where it felt like things were changing. And things were changing for the better, or they could be. Um, and it was an incredibly exciting thing in my life. Um, but when I moved here was also the first time that I got um, paid work. Um, and I, and I encountered my first proper culture clash. I never had that much of a culture clash in South Africa, although I did not speak 11 of the official languages. Um, but I had a huge culture clash here because of the coalition government's attitudes to work, and especially to youth employment and youth unemployment, and what it is to be of value. And I thought I'd do a poem for you about that. Give me a student. Any student, give me only one definition of success and only one way to make it. Give me academic excellence. Give me full-time extracurriculars. Give me part-time job to pay the bills. Give me internship, followed by internship, followed by internship, followed by internship. Give me a lifetime of debt. Then tell me I am worthless. Tell me my labor is not worth paying for. Tell me it's a favor to hire me for free. Go on, tell me I am worthless. When in this country millions of people compete for thousands of jobs, call it their own personal failure when they don't all get one. When the young and the old and the sick have no way into a labor market ever contracting, ever decreasing, when you take money out of their opportunities for education and health, call it their fault. Call them lazy. Call them benefit scroungers. Call it a culture of dependency. Go on. Tell us we are worthless. Say it's not political. Say it's just the way it is that food banks can be cut, but big banks need to be bailed out. That the minimum wage can stagnate and benefits can be chucked off entirely, but when the 1% made more off of the first year of the financial crisis than they had for the 30 years before, say it's austerity? I don't know. Tell us we are worthless. Rebrand public failure into personal competition. Rebrand it filling your CV. Rebrand it increasing your skill sets. Rebranded exposure and networking. As we volunteer and intern, volunteer and intern, digging ourselves ever deeper into debt, ever deeper into despair, go on. Tell us we are worthless. Tell me unemployment levels skyrocketing have nothing to do with it. Tell me being more likely to end up on the street than in a graduate job has nothing to do with it. Go on. Tell me we're all middle class now. Call call centre workers and shelf stackers, garbage handlers and cleaners. Call one out of five working for less than the minimum wage, which is less than the living wage. Just middle class in the making. Go on, tell us we are worthless. Occupy my body as if it were a resource you could use to erase the GDP broken back from all the heavy lifting. Crumbling knees from all those hours, standing depression and stress from the worry. How will I pay rent this month? How will she support the kids? How will he pay the medical bills? Go on. 
Tell us we are worthless. Tell us the only thing not working about this system is us. I'm just gonna do, thank you guys. I'm just gonna mention the shortest thing, which is that is a poem from, of course, a free show that I'm doing now because exposure and networking, guys, all for artists. Um, I'm doing a free show about living and, and being angry at politics in Sweden, South Africa, and Scotland. It's all very S-themed. There's a very shoehorned in S-themed thing that goes strategies for dealing with political bullshit. If you wanna come, it starts at 2 p.m. today. I'll be at the door with some flyers. Um, thanks very much Agnes that's really brilliant please do check out her show it's at 2 o'clock you can still make it after this show can we welcome please Julia Tordovan who is going to deliver for us uh, a letter from East Timor um, Julia didn't write the letter Julia's going to read the letter from East Timor Julia Tordovan Hello, yes, this is a letter from a friend of mine, uh, Steve Malach, who lives in East Timor. He's a UN worker. Um, I have a lot of connections with East Timor myself, having spent a lot of time there as a child and going there in October this year. Cannot wait. Um, but here, um, here is uh, the letter from East Timor to Scotland. And the, these photographs are by Steve as well, taken there. I'm living on a tropical island about 20 metres from the ocean where the nighttime temperature is in the mid-20s Celsius and eating grilled fish and corn down by the ocean around sunset sitting on plastic chairs is as sublime as the fanciest of five-star beach resorts anywhere in the world. Most Timorese depend on fishing and agriculture for their livelihoods and live in rural areas, while the capital, Dili, is going through a construction boom that is transforming the city with new buildings and roads. For me, it has been and continues to be an amazing privilege to be part of a journey through the early years of what used to be the world's newest nation until Kosovo and South Sudan got in on the act. You have to get in quick to use that line from promoting tourism, by the way, as you never know who will be, le who will be next. Catalonia, Western Sahara, the historical, political and personal journeys of almost everyone in Timor-Leste are incred incredible. There's not a single family or individual over the age of about 15 who has not been directly affected by the 24-year occupation of their country by Indonesia. Stories from 1999, when the popular consultation on autonomy versus independence took place, pop up, pop up at all kinds of unexpected moments. A colleague came with me for the first time to our main office in Dili just the other day, and as we walked in the building, he said, I've got a story about this building. I raised an eyebrow. A good story? I asked. Yes, a good story, he replied with a smile. His good story involved a clandestine meeting of activists and campaigners for independence who had held a secret meeting in this building before the popular consultation took place in 1999. They strategized on how to spread the word that it was very important to vote and to explain that to vote no to autonomy meant voting yes to independence. This fact had to reach a widely spread population with limited communications access and low levels of literacy. It was a huge and dangerous job in a volatile, highly militarized climate, hostile to the very idea of self-determination. They succeeded. 
the vote was overwhelmingly in favour of independence. But after voting, many people fled to the hills because the Indonesian occupation ended with a scorched earth policy as the military and their militias retreated to West Timor. Homes, schools and offices were systematically torched with, a small, incendi with small incendiary devices along the way and independence activists were sought out for angry retribution by the armed forces of the losing side. Many of the people at that campaign strategy meeting were later hunted down and taken back to the very same house, where some were tortured and some were killed. Days later, a crowd formed at the house because a militia member alleged to have been involved in these atrocities had returned to the scene of the crime. Those present were ready to lynch the man, literally. My colleague intervened and set up a table and chair and asked anyone with anything to say to give a statement one at a time. He wrote down witness te testimonies, testimonies and the words of the accused to pass on to the UN and what was later to become the Serious Crimes Panel. It was enough to calm the crowd and to save a man's life. Timor-Leste has come an enormously long way since 1999. Two years of UN administration became, be, began the re reconstruction process and full sovereignty was handed over on the 20th of May 2002. Nobody would say that life post-independence has been easy. The country's first entire annual budget was around $70 million. Negotiations over the Timor Sea the Timor Sea's oil and gas with neighbouring Australia has proved fraught with difficulties, and internal conflicts that emerged in 2006 threatened to destabilise the country and led to a second round of UN peacekeeping. Rebuilding the country has not only meant reconstruction of devastated infrastructure, but also of building a civil service administration from scratch in order to achieve it. In 2014, Timor-Leste now has a $15 billion oil fund modelled along Norwegian lines and is engaged in an enormous process of infrastructure development. Roads, bridges, schools, airports and oil gas terminals are planned. And in a project to reach the last mile of development, communities are even being funded directly to build the local infrastructure they need and choose themselves. Timor-Leste has come a long way, but there still is a long way to go. Their ambition for the future is to become a middle-income country and to see this wealth widely distributed. There has already been a great reduction in the number of cases of malaria, which lends hope that infant and maternal mortality and TB prevalence may also come down. The Anti-Corruption Commission has successfully prosecuted high-profile figures, which ought to be giving others pause for thought. And while gender equality and the rights of people with disabilities or mental health issues remain ongoing journeys, Timor-Leste has its own constitution and has signed up to all the major human rights instruments which guarantee their rights in law. And there is enormous commitment to seeing this journey through. For all the talk of elites and corruption, there are also many wonderful people fully committed to seeing that the whole country benefits from freedom, not just a few. There is an expression from the years of resistance which I've heard more in the last two or three years than any time since the 90s. A luta continua. The struggle continues. To have the chance to vote for moving decision-making powers closer to the people affected by those decisions is a rare privilege. 
To be able to, to debate this choice in a climate free from violence, torture, or risk of arrest for speaking your mind is an even greater privilege. Nobody in Scotland will need to flee their homes and hide in the hills or take refuge in a UN compound after voting for independence. We are lucky, we are privileged, but be under no illusions. Independence is not a magic formula. It is a journey, not a destination. It is a starting point. Choose wisely how you vote and exercise the best judgment you can muster. Don't just vote yes. Come yes or no, don't stop. Don't stop engaging with the decisions that affect our lives. To achieve a fairer, more equal society committed to peace and not war and to an, environmental, an environmentally sustainable future needs us all to take part, to struggle and to keep going till we get there. Steve Malik from East Timor. Thanks very much. We've run over time, ladies and gentlemen, um, for which I do apologise. If you, if you do need to leave, uh, obviously, if you just make your way out, but we'll just try and squeeze everything together. So if somebody could help us get the piano out uh, so that we can hear Ricky's last song. Um, whilst they're doing that, um, uh, uh, Lucy will collect any, everybody's sentences. Please don't leave without leaving your sentences um, with we have a hat here, so if you pass the uh, sentences down along the line, um, the one of the things about these sentences is that uh, they. Sorry, just one second. Um, yeah, the 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 archivists at the uh, the National Library particularly like the fact that it's that it, that these things are written on scraps of paper because the feeling that they have is that in 200 years time it's the it's the other stuff on your little bit of paper might be as interesting as as what you have to say and so when they saw the bundle of stuff that we we put together they were um they were really really delighted so so you're contributing to something that you know maybe in 2 or 300 years time some archivist in a dusty room will look at so pass your sentences along to the end thank you very much for coming thank you very much for listening to the interesting panel and to having a thought about all of these and for having a thought about all of these important ideas agnes torok is performing at the fringe um and i think uh, the people from positive money will be hanging around they have t-shirts on so you can spot them if you want to talk to them or find out more about ben's organization in the meantime, I think thank you very, very much for coming to the yurt. We uh, have a different theme tomorrow. We have Jim Sillers coming uh, to talk about dancing with the big boys, negotiations after a post-yes vote, uh, should such be. I think without further ado, I'd like to welcome, to thank all of our guests and welcome to the stage once more, Ricky Ross. Thank you. piano's gone up and down a bit. So anyway, this is like the end of the night and it's been a works night out in Dundee and a friend of mine swore that he saw this as a guy leaning against a, a wall. He's had a really good night. Um, he's got uh, an ice cream 99 in his hand um, and uh, he's got a, a fish supper in his hand. Um, 
and he's got a wee embassy number six just coming out here, and he's wondering how he's going to get that kind of tenants just off the pavement. And he's got that kind of... That's the scene. There he stood and there we left Outside the flashing neon sign And the smell of cheap cigars And the hope of sweet perfume His heart, it was reeling With the thrill of it all Hard of doing only hours He said, all oh, this is all you you can have it all You can take it all away From where we left off Living it all your way If you stand in my shoes If you do what I do On a wages day Open in his hand from one way to another. This long narrow land is full of possibilities, harder to in only hours. He said, All oh, this is all yours. You can have it all. Have a lovely time in Edinburgh. Thanks very much, everyone. Um, thank you very much for coming. I'm sorry we couldn't read out your sentences, but we will put them up on the website and put them on the podcast, and they will be recorded and go to the library. But thank you very, very much for coming on what was a, a, a wonderful show and a lovely sunny day. So please enjoy the rest of the Fringe. Thanks very much.
Okay, so these are the sentences that we got um, from uh, show seven. My brain hurts a lot. I, we asked the audience to answer for, to end the sentence. I get paid to dot dot dot, and I don't get paid to dot dot dot. So, uh, yep, I'll read out some of them. I think I'll read them out in in. Um, yeah, in pairs. I, I get paid to... Yeah, so these pairs are not necessarily the same. I mean, they're not from necessarily the same person. But I'll do, an, I'll do one then the other. I get paid to teach. But in England, that actually means getting paid to control and limit education to what is easily assessed. I subvert. I don't get paid to bear the brunt of mistakes made by bankers and politicians. I get paid to solve problems, investigate options. I don't get paid to play Xbox. I get paid to evaluate, bring expertise and advise. I don't get paid to believe posh politicos and Brito wankers. Oh, sorry, Brito bankers. I get paid formally to help my pupils and now much less to help some psychology students. I don't get paid for bullshit. I get paid to be part of the bigger picture. I don't get paid the same level as a banker, but contribute more to the real economy. I get paid to make things happen. I don't get paid to listen to a London-based, politically biased BBC. I get paid to think, not talk. I don't get paid to reform the money supply, but it's the most important thing we could all do. I get paid to talk. I don't get paid to be patient. I get paid to be a shaman. I don't get paid to vote. I get paid to educate. I don't get paid to indoctrinate. I get paid for 40 hours a week of my time alive so that I can pay my debts and bills. I don't get paid for my time alive outside of jobs. I get paid to turn up. I don't get paid to be challenging. I get paid to howl at the moon. I don't get paid to mind my P's and Q's. I get paid to talk and think about play. I don't get paid to play. I get paid to shugle columns of numbers about. I don't get paid to bring up the next generation, grow food, help run community events and organisations. I get paid as a pensioner made bonkers by bankers' greed and criminality. I don't get paid to challenge the establishment bankers and politicians for social justice and equality. I get paid to impose order on chaos. I don't get paid to fund Trident. I get paid to help reduce health inequalities. I don't get paid to cure all ills. I get paid to daydream about the future. I don't get paid to love. I get paid to stop complaining and settle for minimum wage. I don't get paid to live. I get paid to be creative. I don't get paid to fanny around. I get paid to manage the business of art. I don't get paid to make art. I get paid to challenge the way people think and help, and I help them to make a difference. I don't get paid to listen to great music. Thank you, Ricky. I get paid to fly aircraft. I don't get paid to campaign for democracy. I get paid to rip people off. I don't get paid to smile. And uh, there's some unattached uh, don't get paid. I, sorry, get paid. I get paid to discover the unknown, mostly about how plants tell the time.
I get paid to waste my time. I get paid to stop irrational statements. I get paid to grow old happy. I get paid to live and contribute, not to subsidize leeches. I get paid to enjoy life. So that's the end of those. Um, I think they were fun. And uh, some of them were pairs by the same people and some of them weren't. You can't, sometimes you can tell, but uh, I think they're all fun. And uh, I hope you enjoyed them. Thanks very much. <laughs>